Bible Church, if you will, you open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10. I encourage you to keep your Bible open and follow along as we dig into God's Word together. And as already been said uh, to those who are here uh, with us in the building and those who are uh, joining us online, Merry Christmas. It is so good uh, to see you here this morning. One of the Schlegel family Christmas traditions is we usually have a puzzle going on our dining room table and a board game or two that we're playing throughout the Christmas season. And growing up, one of the, one of the board games that we loved to play was a, a game called Hungry Hungry Hippos. All right, so moment of truth. How many of you heard of that game? All right, all right, good. It's a... Uh, it's a game where you have these four plastic hippos, and there's a limited number of these white marbles on the game, and, and as soon as the game starts, you hit the lever on the hippo, and the hippo grabs these marbles, and, and all it's kind of a, a feeding frenzy, and then once the board is empty and all the marbles have been gobbled up, whoever has the most marbles at the end wins. So... You might be thinking, what in the world does hungry, hungry hippos have to do with Christmas or with the Bible? Well, let me explain. Our world operates on a value system that's very similar to hungry, hungry hippos. Our world operates on a value system that's based upon performance. The world tells us that in order to have significance or value or worth, in order to be somebody, it all depends on the marbles that you have. And the world tells us that the marbles on this value system of the world are things like being beautiful or smart, accomplished, educated, successful, connected, eloquent, athletic, and so on and so forth. Those are the marbles we're all going after. And, and even, even religion can fall prey to this a value system of the world that just operates by a different currency. You know, who knows the most Bible verses? Who prays the most eloquent? Who preaches the best sermon? Who serves the most in the church? And so all of us are tempted to do this. The pursuit, this pursuit of value and significance as the world defines it, it's going to look different from one person to the next. But everyone wants their life to count. So some people will be like a peacock, loudly displaying their accomplishments and their abilities so that all can see. Others go about it differently. They're more quiet like a mouse. And they kind of in self-righteousness look down on the loud as obnoxious. But both groups who go about it differently are after the same thing. They want to be respected, appreciated, needed, or liked by others. They want to know that their life mattered, that their life has value or significance. And so as a result, many people go about their day and their schedule like a hungry hippo, trying to gobble up as many marbles as they can. Often unaware of what they're doing, that they're actually infected with the world's value system. 
how the world operates. It's the air that we breathe. And, and left to ourselves, our sinful hearts are prone to find their own value through performance, through competition, through comparison. You ever get tired of that? I think most of us do in a moment of clarity. But even if we do grow weary of this rat race, tired of caring what other people think about us, tired of this world's system of value, we might want to get out, but we kind of feel trapped by it. We don't want to be self-centered, but giving up this pursuit of greatness can feel risky because the world doesn't stop gobbling up the marbles. And if I don't have any marbles when everybody else keeps gobbling them up, I can end up feeling like a loser, like a nobody. And so before long, I'm sucked back into the world's value system, gobbling up marbles with the rest of the world. So is there a different way to live? And is that way possible? How can we break free from how the world operates in order to find peace and rest and freedom? Well, this Advent season, we have been asking the question, why did Jesus come? We know that, that Christmas is a celebration of Jesus coming, God coming in the flesh for us, but why did he come? And we don't want to just kind of speculate. We want to go to the Bible and say, well, what does God say? How does he answer that question? Why did Jesus come? And so for the last couple of weeks, that's what we've been doing. We've been going to the different texts of scripture that answer that question. Isaiah 61 reminded us that Jesus came to bind up the brokenhearted. Hebrews 2 last week reminded us that Jesus came to destroy the devil. Today in Mark 10, Jesus tells us he came to serve. Jesus came to serve. And I pray that in seeing Jesus as our King, our Messiah, who serves, that we would find the freedom that he came to provide us in Jesus Christ. Now we're kind of just jumping into the Gospel of Mark, so let me try to set up the book a little context for you. The Gospel of Mark is, a, is one of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in the New Testament. And the Gospel of Mark seeks to answer two major questions. First of all, who is Jesus? Most important question in Christianity. Second of all, the, the, the Gospel of Mark answers, what does it mean to follow him? So who is Jesus, and then what does it mean to follow him? And then the book, the Gospel of Mark, breaks into two major sections. Chapters 1 through 8 are eight chapters that show us that Jesus is the king. It shows us Jesus' identity as the king. Then chapters 9 through 16 point to Jesus' suffering, kind of the passion. And in the middle, that kind of serves as a pivot point, Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Savior, the Messiah, that he is the Christ, that when he says that in chapter 8, verse 29, that's the pivot point of the book. As soon as Peter makes the confession that Jesus is the Christ, then Jesus then turns his attention in the rest of the book to show us how he will establish his kingdom as the Christ. Not through military might and power, but rather he will set up his kingdom through his suffering, his death, and his resurrection. 
Well, that's not what the disciples expected. That's, that wasn't their plan. They thought that Christ would come and do something different than Jesus had said. And so to make sure that his disciples and we hear him, Jesus will three times before it happens warn his disciples, I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be killed. And on the third day, I will rise again. He does it in chapter 8. He does it again in chapter 9. And he does it a third time in chapter 10 in the verses immediately before what we're looking at. So in chapter 10, if you look at your Bible, chapter 10, verses 33 and 34, we see Jesus' third declaration of this. He says, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priest and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Third time. And so when you, hear those, when you hear those words from Jesus again, the question that kind of bubbles up is, okay, will his disciples finally get it? Will they understand it? Will they grasp it? How are they going to respond to Jesus' threefold warning or, or, or foretelling of, of what's about to happen? How are they going to respond? Well, that's where we pick up the story this morning in verse 35. So look with me at verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism which I am to be baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink you will drink and the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the 10 heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Amen. Notice, notice in verse 45 that word ransom. It's a very important word. A, a ransom in the New Testament is a payment that is made in order to set someone free from a prison or from being a slave. So Jesus said, I came not to be served, I came to serve. And then he says at the very end of verse 45 what that service looks like. He came to lay down his life, to give his life as a ransom, that we would be set free. That's what a ransom does. Freedom from the world's exhausting path 
of trying to determine our value. Freedom from the world's exhausting path that leads to death. That freedom is found in Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And so in order to show us the path to that freedom, to set us free, Mark is going to lay out two steps for us this morning. First step is this, count the cost. That's verses 35 through 41. And then the second step is follow Jesus' path to greatness. And that's verses 42 through 45. That's the two points of the sermon this morning. Point number one, count the cost. Point number two, follow Jesus' path to greatness. So let's, let's look at that first step that he, Mark gives us in verses 35 through 41. Count the cost. Now, James and John, they are orthodox. They believe the truth about Jesus. They understand with Peter that Jesus is the king. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. But as Jesus marches into Jerusalem for the Passover, their assumption is that he's going to come in with this military might of a king, and he's going to wipe out Rome, who happens to be the government in power at that time, and he's going to wipe out this oppressive government immediately. That sheds a little bit of light on why they ask Jesus the question that they do in verse 37. They say, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left hand, in your glory. They're marching into Jerusalem. Glory is just around the corner. They think it's going to come immediately. And so they ask for the the top seats. In the New Testament, the, the right hand and the left seats are the number two and number three cabinet positions for a king. They are the highest seats of honor in the kingdom of God. And so if Jesus is king and he's about to take his throne, then James and John are not about to let this opportunity for glory slip by. They sneak away from the other 10 and they ask for the top seats. Their question really exposes their self-centeredness, that they're still operating according to the world's value system because they're out to to snatch up the marbles of glory that come by hanging out with Jesus. And, they're, and, and they do it before someone else snatches up those marbles, right? And the world looks at James and John, the sons of Zebedee, and they, the world celebrates their initiative. I mean, they're taking the bull by the horns. They're making a name for themselves. What's wrong with that, right? But the evil of self-centeredness comes into focus when you see James and John in contrast to Jesus. Jesus came to serve. Jesus came to serve sinners like me and like you. Sinners like James and John. And so while Jesus prepares to suffer on the cross, the wrath of God against sin, as Jesus prepares in a few days to go and suffer for the penalty of our sin, when Jesus could have used the support of his friends like James and John, oh, they are too busy to support him. They're too busy because they're thinking about themselves. They're preoccupied with visions of grandeur. 
Yes. James and John want to honor Jesus. They understand that he is the Christ. But they want to ride in on his coattails. They they want to get honor for themselves by being with Jesus. Friends, I think James and John's question is a sober warning for us as professing Christians. It's a sober warning for us that that religion can often be mixed with a sinful self-interest. Or worse, it's a warning for how self-centeredness can hide under the camouflage of religion. How do we recognize if we're guilty of this self-centeredness? Sometimes we're We're even unaware of it ourselves. How can we see it? Well, one diagnostic tool to identify this self-centeredness is to look at Jesus' question in verse 36. He he asks James and John. James and John come to him and and they first of all say, we want you to do whatever we ask, which, by the way, kind of exposes, they're, 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 they're a little bit sheepish about what they're about to ask. They know there's something a little bit off, right? Because parents, if your kids come to you and ask you that, don't, don't say yes. Do what Jesus does. He, he says, okay, well, hold on. What do you want me to do for you? Friends, just think about that question for a little bit. What if Jesus came to you and asked you that question this afternoon? What do you want me to do for you? How would you answer that question? Well, just as the answer that the Zebedee's brothers gave exposed the motives of their hearts, how we would answer Jesus' question at an honest, heart-level, kind of gut-level response shows whether we are out to seek our own glory or the glory of God. So take some time this afternoon think about Jesus' question. Think about how you would answer that question. Talk about it over lunch. Pray about it. How, how would my heart respond to Jesus asking me today, what do you want me to do for you? And then once you know the answer to that, bring that to the Lord. Well, James and John asked for the top seats. That's how they answer it. Well, how does James and John request of Jesus then affect the unity of the rest of this group of disciples? Look again at verse 41. Verse 41 says, And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. To be indignant means to be angry. It's a word that means to be irate, to be offended, right? And so if we could go back in time and, and, and see and hear the response and the words and the whispering of the, the other ten disciples, I, I think it would be safe to assume that their, their anger at first would sound righteous. I mean, look at James and John. They sneak off. They ask Jesus for the top two seats in his kingdom. Huh. My goodness. Who are they to ask a question like that? But as righteous as their anger may have sounded, 
I think it's likely that their anger, their indignation was deep down because they thought, hey, 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 I'm supposed to be sitting at the left. I'm supposed to be sitting at the right hand of Jesus. The ten, the ten disciples' anger was because James and John beat him to the punch. They all wanted those seats. Friends, when we operate by the world's value system, we need to remember there are only a limited number of marbles that can be gobbled up. And so if, 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 if someone else gets honor and praise or attention, well, that means less honor and praise and attention for me. If they're out gobbling up marbles, that means less marbles for me. And friends, them are fighting words. There's a lot of indignation in our world right now. There's a lot of conflict in our world right now. And yes, there is such a thing as righteous anger. If you want to think carefully about that, let me recommend to you Pallison's book called Good and Angry. Good and Angry. If you want to copy that, just contact the church office. We, we can get you a copy from our bookstall. It's a wonderful treatment about what the Bible says about anger. There is such a thing as righteous anger, but a lot of our human anger is not righteous. A lot of our human anger is the fruit of envy-driven indignation. Somebody else gets something that we think should be ours, and I get angry. Friends, what about you? Is there something in your heart that, that, that you can identify with the other ten in their indignation? Do you find yourself angry or offended by someone this morning? Are you irritated or annoyed that they have what you think you deserve? That they get the attention, that they get the raise, that they get the promotion, that they get the applause, and you are overlooked? When we seek our own glory, when we are out to try to gobble up all the marbles we can, then what happens is the people who are around us, in our friends, in our family, in our workplace, in our neighborhood, wherever we are at, when we operate according to the world's value system, people are no longer people to love, to serve, to care for. They are obstacles. They're obstacles in our competition to get what we want or what we feel entitled to. And so one of the diagnostic questions is not only Jesus' question in verse 36. Another diagnostic tool is to, is to recognize whether or not this indignation is in your heart. Because the indignation of these 10 is a symptom of us living by the world's value system. It is not, it is not the way of Jesus. So what is Jesus' way then? Verse 45. Jesus, the Son of Man, came not to be served. He came to serve. When he walks in the room, he's not asking, what do you do for me? Did you notice me? When he walks in the room, he's, how can I help? How can I serve? What can I, what can I do to give of myself for your good? That's his heart. 
The word that Jesus chose for serve, he came not to be served, but to serve, that word is the same Greek word that's used to, to describe a table waiter. Somebody who serves you when you go to Arby's. I guess they have waiters at Arby's. You know, a sit-down restaurant, right? Remember those days? A table waiter. That's remarkable. God, the creator of the universe, the king of kings, describes his mission, his ministry of being God in the flesh, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. He describes his ministry by using the word for table waiter. Really? Yes. And when he dealt with the hard-heartedness of people in the previous chapter, chapter 9, Jesus asked in chapter 9, verse 19, how long am I going to bear with you? Friends, you and I are some of the people that Jesus came to serve, but we are not always easy to serve. Just like these hard-hearted people in chapter 9, the hard-hearted people in chapter 9, Jesus says, how long must I bear with you? But he bears with us. God is patient. That's the heart of God. God sticks with us. He does not just write us off when we are hard-hearted. He sticks with us. He bears with us. You know why? Because of love. This is the heart of God. Friends, sometimes we get frustrated when people we're praying for and discipling are not growing as fast as we would like, or they're not growing the way that we would like to. And it's then that I think that we're often tempted to look in the mirror and think that the, person, the, reason, this, the reason this person is not growing as fast or as the way that they are, we expect them to is because I'm a lousy teacher. I'm a lousy discipler. I'm a lousy evangelist. That's why, that's why they're not growing. But friends, if you think that sometimes, be encouraged by Jesus. Don't forget, Jesus, the Son of God, his disciples walked with him for three years. They heard him teach. They saw his miracles. They ate meals together. They traveled together. They knew Jesus. And after three years, they still don't get it. And it ain't because he's a bad teacher. <laughs> I find that instructive. Friends, we should, as teachers, as parents, wherever you have influence, whatever you're doing, we should always labor to improve how we teach and pray and evangelize and disciple. Yes, but we must remember that spiritual growth takes time. So be encouraged and be patient. Parents, parents, some of you have kids that you've prayed for for years. You've taught them scriptures. You've memorized scriptures with them. You've catechized your children. You've brought them to church. You have lost sleep over your children. And this morning, your kids still don't get it. As far as you can tell, they're not trusting Christ. They're still living for themselves, which can be heartbreaking as a parent. Parents, listen. As long as your children are alive, the story's not over yet. Be patient. 
Keep praying for your kids. Keep loving your kids. Keep sharing with your kids as they will listen. Don't give up. It takes time. Spiritual growth takes time. God has been patient with us, has he not? God has been patient with us, and so we need to be patient with our kids. And friends, listen, if your kids are following Jesus, don't let that go to your head. Give thanks to the Lord for the fact that your, your kids do know the Lord. It's the grace of God, not your, not your perfect parenting, that anyone believes. So give thanks to God with a heart of humility. Kids, kids, listen up. Do you ever get irritated or annoyed when someone gets in the way of what you want? Maybe it's a, a friend, a classmate, maybe it's your brother or sister. Ah, I want this and they're in my way. You ever feel that way? You ever feel angry when someone gets praised or gets special attention and you feel overlooked? We all feel that way sometimes. And I think as, 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 a, as a young person, we can particularly feel the sting of, of that. Friends, just like the 10 disciples felt indignant with James and John, it's easy for us to dislike, to be indignant, to be angry with the people that we envy. So kids, here's my encouragement to you. The next time you feel angry or you feel that envy or you feel that, that, that indignation towards somebody who gets in the way of what you want, pray for them. One of, the, one of the best things you can do is pray for God to bless the person that you're angry with because it's hard to envy the person that you're praying that God would bless. So pray for them. Pray that God would encourage them and bless them and use them. And I think that what you'll find is your own heart changing as you pray for those person that you envy. Well, one thing that becomes clear with James and John question is that they have a pretty high view of themselves. They kind of think they're the stuff. And they were on the inner, you know, John was on the inner circle of, with Jesus, so maybe that went to his head. I don't know. But when Jesus asked them in verse 38, can you handle where he was headed? What's, what's shocking is they answer very glibly in verse 39. Yeah, we're able. We got this. The problem is that James and John still have their own idea of what Jesus' mission is. They think Jesus is doing one thing, and he's not. And so they assume, well, I, yeah, we, we can do this, because they're thinking of Christianity as in their own mind and their own estimation. Friends, religion that we create in our own imagination is always achievable in our own power and strength. Biblical Christianity, you can't do it yourself. Biblical Christianity, we need God. We need his word. We need his people. We need the help of his Holy Spirit. And so the fact that they're saying, yeah, hey, we got this, we were able, they don't get it yet. Jesus was teaching them Christianity is not a buffet line that we kind of pick and choose the parts that we like and skip over the parts that we don't like. Being a Christian means trusting Jesus, period. And following Jesus, if we trust him, we will follow him wherever he leads. No questions asked. So when Jesus talks about this cup that he's about to drink and the baptism with, 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 with he's about to be baptized, he's talking about his death. Both those, imagery, both of those images are meant to foreshadow his coming death. Yes, James and John, they will suffer as they follow Jesus. And so Jesus acknowledges that. 
but they will not suffer in the unique way that Jesus' death will be a unique ransom to redeem sinners. They will suffer physically, but Jesus will bear the wrath of God on the cross. For us to drink that cup that he's about to drink would mean for us to suffer an eternity in hell, and Jesus alone can suffer and drink that cup and then get up on the third day. He does that so that the child of God does not need to drink that cup. And then he calls us to follow him. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once wrote, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. He wrote that in his book, The Cost of Discipleship. When Jesus calls a man, he bids him come and die. And when you you hear a statement like that, and you take it seriously, that's a hard pill to swallow. You you might find your heart kind of pushing against what Bonhoeffer's saying. I'm not sure I want that. Because it kind of sounds like the end of happiness. Is Jesus calling us to the end of happiness? Quite the contrary. He does call us to come and follow him. He does call us, as Bonhoeffer says, to come and die. But Jesus' call, his invitation, is the path of freedom and joy because his invitation is the beginning of fellowship and communion with him. And so for the joy set before us, we are called to count the cost. To count the cost. Church, have you counted the cost? Have you taken seriously what it means to follow Jesus? Once we've counted the cost, we then, second, follow Jesus' path to greatness. That's point number two. Follow Jesus' path to greatness. And we see this in verses 42 through 45. Look at verse 42. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your, the slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, when, when, when Jesus refers to the rulers of the Gentiles in verse 42, that's his shorthand way of saying, that's how the world operates. The Gentiles, the nations, the, the ethne, that's how the world operates. That's, that's the world's value system. Notice two times in verse 42, Jesus says, this is how the world operates. They stand over them. They lord it over them, and they exercise authority over them. Have you ever seen the iconic photograph of Muhammad Ali standing over Sonny Liston when he knocked out Sonny Liston in in 1965? He's got his arm like this, and he's looking down at Sonny Liston in triumph. He's standing over him. That's actually a good illustration of what Jesus is talking about in verse 42. Since the world determines value by performance and competition and comparison, it's kind of a a cutthroat 
way to finding our significance. The world puts out the red carpet for those who performed the best, for those who have won the competition. No doubt, we, we, might, dress, we might dress up this value system with niceties, but at the end of the day, the world that we live in, the world system that, we're, that we live in, and our own sinful flesh longs to lord it over others. There's something in us that, that revels in the fact that I was right and you were wrong. I was strong and you were weak. I was smart and you were dumb. I won and you lost. And then to stand over the competition like Muhammad Ali and say, where are you at now? Friends, is there not something in your heart that finds that appealing? There's a reason that photograph is iconic. But what's interesting is that in this pursuit of greatness, Jesus does not denounce the pursuit of greatness. Jesus does not call you to be lame. Jesus wants you to pursue greatness. But he redefines what greatness is. Look again at verse 43. But it shall not be so among you. So he sets up the world system, and then he says in verse 43, but it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Jesus calls us to pursue greatness. Again, but not the way the world pursues greatness. In the kingdom of God, with Jesus as king, greatness is not determined by how many servants you have. Greatness is determined by who we serve. It's, by, it's determined by us serving others. That's the path. That's Jesus' path to greatness. And then verse 44 kind of ups the ante. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. He changes the word from, 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 from servant to slave. It's one thing to be a servant. It's one thing to be a table waiter, right? We may choose that as a line of work. You know, being a, a table waiter can be a good job. But a slave? Uh, no one signs up for that. A slave is, is the last. The slave is the least of all. The slave is below the servant, below the table waiter. The slave is a nobody. The slave has no rights. And yet Jesus says, if you want to be great, you must be a servant. You must be a slave. Friends, do you, do you find Jesus' words offensive? Is there something inside of you that says, ah, I don't know. Maybe he didn't mean that. Does your heart recoil against that? Because if we're actually listening to Jesus, I think this aspect of Christianity can be challenging to us because it insults our pride. Jesus insults our self-importance. And redefines it and says, here's how you should find yourself importance. And so following Jesus and trusting Jesus, it feels risky 
Being a slave, being a servant feels risky because walking this path requires trusting Jesus. It requires putting all of our chips, so to speak, with Jesus and then walking away from any possibility of getting applause from the, the world's well-worn path to greatness. We're saying, I'm done with that. And then we get nervous, right? Because the world keeps gobbling up the marbles. So why should we do this? Why should we take this risk? Again, verse 45, Jesus says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Friends, the reason a ransom is needed in the first place is because the debt of our sin, the debt that our sin leaves us with in, in, in a, with a holy God is one that we cannot afford. It's the debt of our life. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. An eternity separated, separated from God in hell. And so knowing the danger that sinners like you and I are in, left to ourselves, knowing that we cannot in our own strength save ourselves or pull ourselves up from the pit of sin and despair, Jesus looked at us and he came to serve. As the Son of God, he had every right to be served. But in his love, he laid aside his rights. And he willingly laid down his life for us. A ransom for many. A ransom in our place as our substitute. On the third day, Jesus got up from the dead. Victorious over sin and Satan and death. And he rose again to prove that the debt has been paid in full. The work that was necessary for our redemption has been finished. That means there's nothing left for you and I to do except to receive that gift. It cost God his own son so that it could be free for us. That is grace. Friends, the only thing that's left for us is to turn away from our sin and to turn to Christ. We don't earn this. We don't pay for this gift. We just receive it. And the way we receive it is by trusting in Christ, turning from our sin. So friends, if you're not yet a follower of Christ, if you're here this morning in the building, if you're watching online and you're not yet a follower of Christ, Jesus is calling you in his word to turn away from your sin, to turn away from your attempts to be good enough to come with empty hands and to trust in Jesus, to receive the gift of eternal life that comes through Jesus. Do that today. If you have questions about how you do that or what that means, talk to me, talk to any of the, the pastors who are here, talk to any of the members here. If, if you're watching online, call a, a Christian friend, talk to them about that. Don't, don't lay this aside and say, I'll get to that later. Do it today. Do it today. Friends, in the last paragraph of chapter 10, Jesus goes on and he meets a, a blind beggar named Bartimaeus. And G Bartimaeus is on the roadside. He's blind and he's begging. He's poor. And he calls out for mercy. Have mercy on me. He knows he's in trouble. He knows his need. Have mercy. And then God, God the son, stops and he invites Bartimaeus to come to him. And, then, and, and Jesus then asks him in verse 51. Notice this in verse 51. 
what do you want me to do for you? Remember that question? It's the exact same question that he asked James and John. Soon Jesus will open the eyes of Bartimaeus so that Bartimaeus can see. But Bartimaeus' healing is not simply a physical healing. Bartimaeus was, was made alive spiritually. He's healed spiritually as well. Bartimaeus trusts, he ends up trusting Jesus. How do we know that? Well, the very last sentence of verse 52 shows us. He, Bartimaeus, followed him on the way. He didn't just take God's gifts and then walk away. He, he received God's gift and then he followed Jesus. Friends, whether or not you and I actually trust Jesus, the litmus test of whether or not we actually trust Jesus is this. Are you following Jesus? When he calls, when he commands us in Scripture, do we excuse ourselves? Do we water down what Jesus says in his word? Do we pick and choose which commands we like and we're okay with and which ones we don't? Or do we trust Jesus and express that trust in humble obedience and submission to our king? Bartimaeus trusted him. Friends, we as Christians, as followers of Jesus, serve. We are to lay aside our rights, to inconvenience ourselves and to give our time and our resources for the good of others. We do this not to earn points with God. And we do this not only to feel better about ourselves. That would be, in a sense, selfish. We serve as followers of Jesus because we've experienced the love of God in Christ in how he serves us. Friends, by laying down his life as our ransom, Jesus has once and for all proven his heart for us. He is not against us. He is for us. The next time you feel like God is against you, remember that Jesus, God, God did not spare his own son, but he delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? In him we have everything we need. Because God of God's grace in Jesus Christ, you and I can be sure this morning that we are known, that we are loved, and that we are cared for, and we will be cared for. In giving his life as a ransom, Jesus is saying to you, child of God, he is saying to you this morning, you matter to me. I love you, and I will not let you go. It's this love this sacrifice, this ransom that sets us free from the world's self-centered rat race. It frees us up from our insecure need to prove ourselves and to prove our value and our significance because we know that because of God's grace, our value is settled. We know that in him we matter because of his grace. Friends, those who load, lord it over others often forget that the person they're competing with is also a person who's been made in God's image just like them. Pride forgets that. Even the people who disagree, church, even the people who disagree with us, 
even the people who slander us, even the people who attack us, we are called to serve, to forgive, to bear up with. That doesn't mean that we are a pushover. It doesn't mean that we lack a spine. It doesn't mean that we lack conviction. Far from it. It, doesn't mean, it, is, it does not even mean that we agree with the person who opposes us about everything. But it does mean that we obey what Jesus commanded us in Luke 6. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Do to others as you would have them to do to you. Church, this giving of self is what Jesus did for us while we were yet sinners, while we were spitting in his face, while in our sin we were thumbing our nose and hating him, he laid down his life in Christ and served us. Does this Christ-like selflessness characterize your life? It should. As followers of Christ, it should, because trusting Jesus means following Jesus. And trusting Jesus means being set free by Jesus. Let's pray together.